morning. If you uh, have your Bible with you, turn with me to Genesis 19. Genesis chapter 19. The plains are here, and um, that's always a sign of summer and a cause of irritation. So we're going to be in Genesis 19, but I want to start by reading one verse from chapter 18 and open in prayer. So, Genesis 18, 25. Genesis chapter 18, verse 25. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. Let me read it one more time. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you Thank you, Lord, that there is a standard. There is a grid for us to go to, consistently go to, and ask what is right. Lord, I don't trust my own mind, my own judgment. I don't trust that of fallen man. And God, there's just this continual, steady, steadfast, glorious word to go to over and over again. And I thank you so much, Lord God, that I really believe that this church family, their desire is that the word of God be central. Father, that you have the last say. And I pray and hope the first. So please, Father, as we turn our attention to your word this morning, would you illuminate our minds, Lord God, enable us to see what is in this passage, and Lord, how it applies to us. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you know this, the book of Genesis is controversial. Um. You know, it's fascinating when you hear folks talk about the Word of God and and they speak of the Bible as an old dusty book that doesn't really speak to our day. It's it's, uh, just kind of, oh yeah, you know, it just doesn't really speak to where we are right now. It's been changed so much. It's been translated so many times. How could you put any trust in it? Then you live by it and the world goes, how dare you live by that book? Well, what do you care? If it's an old, dusty book that truly doesn't speak into our lives and really doesn't matter, why are you so concerned and why is it such a hot topic and so controversial? i got to say, you guys, from my heart, as we've been walking through the study of the book of Genesis, I have been freshly surprised each week how this speaks directly to our culture. Over 
like week in, week out kind of stuff where you go, man, I watched the news and then I prepared the sermon and it just speaks directly to what's happening in our world. Now, I should, you know, of course know that, but sometimes when it is so clear from the passage, it's, uh, it's striking. How do you think it would go if you were to have a dinner party this week and you invited friends from more of a right perspective politically and from a left perspective politically, more of a liberal denomination church-wise and more of a very strong conservative, and you invite them all over. This sounds like the beginning of a joke, right? Um, It's not. As they all come over to your house, you sit down and you pour them a cup of coffee because you're a good host or hostess, and as you're visiting with them, you say, you know what, just for fun, before dinner's served, before we have dinner together, let's play a game. Let's collectively define the word justice and see where we land. That word is used a lot, and then I come to a passage like this, and the very question of Abram as he petitions the Lord uh, was, will the God of heaven, the one who's in charge of everything, do that which is just? Maybe you're paying attention to our culture and to the whole debate on justice and all that kind of stuff right now and social justice warriors and all the name-calling and all that fun stuff. How would you define it? Somebody asked you, what is just? Like, what's, what is really the, what's just? What is that? Here's my definition. Now, it's lengthy, so bear with me. Justice is what God says is justice. Boom. (laughs) Period. Justice is what God says is justice. See, this is the tough part. I don't trust Dan. You should not either. And I don't trust you. I don't trust this fallen world. When the world tells me what is just, typically, every single time, it turns out to not be just. So where do you go to define it? A.W. Tozer said this, and I thought it was a great quote. He says, justice, pause for impression, justice, when used of God, is a name we give to the way God is. There's There's something vital here. Don't miss this, you guys. Tozer has been very helpful for me on this category. When we say justice, when used of God, is a name we give to the way God is. Nothing more, and when God acts justly, he's not doing so to conform to an independent criterion, but simply acting like himself in a given situation. So, when we think of God, and we say, God is just, do you, in your mind at times, have justice here, And then you say, God is going to act like that. If that is, you are off the page of the word. You're off the page of scripture. That justice is not outside of him. That justice is him. He is the standard of what justice is. See, it's not that this world is just filled with a whole bunch of things out there that God is trying to meet. He is the standard. So when we start going around saying God is just, 
There's nobody above him that set the criteria for justice. When we say God is loving, there's no criteria that somebody set for love. Otherwise, the person who sets the criteria is God. And when you start saying God's meeting the criteria that some other God made, then who is God? The whole deck of cards falls on itself. So this concept of justice is what God does is just. What God does is loving. What God does is fill in the blank about his attributes. And by the way, his attributes are never in conflict with one another. Tozer goes further in here and talks about that. This isn't a book review, but this guy just, I just love how this guy speaks. His love and his justice are perfectly blended together. His justice is never at odds with his love. His love is never at odds with his justice. He is the supreme being. I think one of the hardest tasks for us as believers is when God says, that's the way it is, and you submit to that. Because in my sinful nature, I wrestle with that. Because I think I'm smarter than God. Now, we all laugh. We know that's insane. You're Dan. Of course you're not smarter than God. I know that, but daily I think I'm smarter than him. All the time, I think I know better than God knows. If that's not the case, which I I absolutely believe it is, don't you find it fascinating, Abraham's word? God, wouldn't you do what's just? Who are you to ask that? Who are you to ask that? And yet the Lord in his love and in his condescension, he comes to us and goes, I know what you're asking. I know what's going on in your mind and heart, and I will listen to you. But don't ever miss it that I'm God, you're not. Why do I start this message that way? Because God is going to pour his wrath out in one of the most horrifying, epic moments in human history. Because he is perfectly just and he hates sin. So, Genesis 19. We're going to be at verse 12, and we'll start there. Now, remember, guys, the context that this is sitting in is Abraham has petitioned and asked the Lord. Remember, he walked down, if there's 50, if there's 45, if there's 40, if there's 30, if there's so on and so forth. Will you, will you not wipe out Sodom, uh, the righteous with the, um, with the wicked. Will you not do that, Lord? And the Lord goes with Abram and said, yes, I will not do that. Then he sends the two angels off, and as the angels are going, that's when Abraham is talking to the Lord about that. The angels are going in. The angels come into Sodom. We see all the men, all the young boys of Sodom come wanting to abuse the two angels. It's a horrifying um, scene. The angels pull Lot out, blindness, And some sort of stupor falls on the people of Sodom. They can't find the door handle. They wear themselves out. That's where we left off in this this layout of this event. Now, look what happens next. Then the men, which is the two angels, then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people 
has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Let me answer a quick question I didn't touch on in the first service, and one brother brought it to my attention. I want to hit it right here. He said, outcry, who's crying out before God? Well, this term outcry, the concept is that it is such an abomination before him what's taking place that that itself is a crying out before God. So it's not that there's some people in Sodom who are pleading and crying out to the Lord, though Lot is vexed in his soul about the sin. That's not the point. There's not an actual individual who is crying out. It is the sin itself and the the terrible things taking place in this city that cries out before the Lord. And his holy, righteous character won't stand for it. Verse 13, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Now remember, guys, the... The, uh, the foundation this whole thing is sitting on is mercy. This is all mercy. Uh, God doesn't have to send the angels to Lot. God doesn't have to go and rescue Lot. God doesn't have to give Lot some time to pull together his family. None of that is, is owed to him. None of that is, he's not worthy of that. Um, I would argue from the text that this is very dependent upon the prayer life of Abraham on behalf of Sodom, why God is doing what he's doing. But we also know from the New Testament, Lot is referred to as righteous lot. Now, when you read about him, you go, maybe it should be not so righteous lot, but he's not righteous in his doing. He's righteous by his faith, just as Abraham is and just as you are. And so in God's mercy, he comes to Lot through these two messengers, and he says, who else do you have? Who else here would you like to go get and bring up? If there is, go. Now, the, the word, the banner I would put over this whole passage is urgency. It's in the air. The whole thing is urgent. Now, go, move, because God is going to pour out his wrath. So he immediately goes to the two sons-in-law. Now, if you were here last week, not last week, it was Mother's Day, the week before, if you were here the week before and heard what we did in, in chapter 19, you may be scratching your head right now saying, time out, sons-in-law? Where did they come from? And not only that, where were they when the two daughters were offered by dad? The idea here is that these are not necessarily the wives. I know they're called sons-in-law. That's because they are engaged in the betrothal process, that they are betrothed to these two men. Now, you ask the question, so who are these two men? Because the passage said all the men came to the house. Do you see how some of the sin of Sodom has been affecting this family. It's interesting. The more you read it and the more you try to kind of read between the lines as best you can, you go, this doesn't look like Lot was squeaky clean all the time. What's he doing at the front gate? Why are his daughters promised to these two people who live in Sodom? Why is he offering his daughter? There's just a lot of questions, a lot of questions about Lot. But regardless, he goes to the two sons-in-law And their response is classic. You've got to be kidding me. 
That says a lot about the sons-in-law. It also says something about Lot, in my opinion, as Lot comes to these two and says, gentlemen, get ready now. We're leaving. God is going to pour his wrath, and we must flee right now. And to, for some reason, in their minds, that was laughable. That was a joke. Now, beloved, think about our own day. To go and talk to a hardened sinner who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, rejects him, rejects the concept of a God, and you come and say, don't you realize the wrath of the living God we poured out soon, and he has provided a way of escape through the salvation of his Son in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will redeem you through that. And the world mocks you. The world laughs at that. Because the sun went down, the sun came up, stock market, stop, stock market goes down, it goes up. The things just continue to progress and move the same way they always do. Why are you using these scare tactics? And here's the mindset. Why are you using these scare tactics to get me to go to church and be religious like you? And you go, wow, that, that ouch, that hurts. Yeah, but in their mind, that's, what, that's all you're doing, apart from the work of the Spirit of God to do the miracle of regeneration in the heart. Now, with that, they laugh at the wrath of the living God. So when I look at the two sons, and the two sons say, Pops is going a little crazy here. No, nothing's happening. You must be joking. Honestly, beloved, that's not that hard to believe that the world would laugh at fear of the wrath of God. And yet, can I remind you, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I fear God. Now, not in the sense that I'm scared of him, like I you know, lose sleep because I'm scared that he could hurt me or wants to hurt me. I, I'm in Christ, but I do fear him. I revere him. I respect him. And all those words I'm trying to put out there, they just don't come close to what I'm trying to communicate. What I'm saying is I recognize the gravity of this God. I recognize the immensity to some level of this God to the point it actually puts fear in my heart to contemplate somebody of that nature. Somebody whose attributes are so off the charts that I can't even grasp the immensity of his authority, the immensity of his power, what he knows, what he can do. When we start really engaging the true living God, we shrink. We are, we are caught off guard by the holy. But prior to our eyes being opened by grace, we laugh at him. Amazing. We do not give anywhere near the, the proper attention to what has taken place in our salvation and what truly has happened. I'm convinced when we are in new heavens and new earth and the Lord opens our, opens our eyes and opens our minds, He will allow us to see what has happened in this transformation of our salvation. And we, if we're wearing socks in heaven, they will be blown off by what we learn in reference to what's taken place from death to life. This is not merely a, oh, uh, uh, I decided to add Jesus to my life because I, I just, in my mind and in my heart and in my will, I thought, yes, why not? I'll say yes to Jesus. Beloved, that is so far from the Bible. The Bible is so strong in its language when it speaks of what happened to you 
by the work of Christ and by the work of the Spirit of God. So laugh on, world, until you are born again, then you are blown away by the majestic king. And I'm convinced 1.4 million years into history, we will say, I haven't come close to recognizing who this person is. He is so awesome. But here they thought he was joking. Whatever, Lot. Now if you look at verse 15, As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. What's your Bible say in verse 16? You can read it out loud if you would. What's verse 16 say? But he lingered. (laughs) Uh, I want to be so careful because... Sometimes, a lot of times, preachers can make a huge mistake where they attach a motive without the text actually giving the motive. And so I want to be careful not to say, I know why he lingered, because the passage doesn't tell me why. And I don't want to attach a poor motive to this man, though my mind and heart wish to, because of the nature of his character I've seen so far, but it doesn't say. So I don't want to put a bad motive on him, and then in heaven, Lot goes, Dan, what's with the bad motive? But nonetheless, do you see in the passage, this whole concept, the atmosphere is urgency. Quick, get up. The angels are saying, up and out. And he lingered. He waited. I don't know why he waited. There's a handful of thoughts I've had as far as, did he linger because he really loves Sodom? Did he linger because there are family there? He doesn't want to see the sons-in-law destroyed. Did he linger because it's easy there? My comfort has been here. Um, you know, it's, it's the... Uh, during the fires that happened last summer, it was amazing to hear one individual that I know of who was evacuated refuse to leave their home and said, I will die in this home. That sense of urgency... Go, run. No, I'm going to stay, thanks. I'm sure I'll be fine. I don't know why he lingered. But he did. And so this is what I find so fascinating about the character of God. If you notice at verse 16, so the men, in reference to the two angels, the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. Now, What is awesome about this passage, what's awesome about this passage, it says they took him by the hand, and then, remember, no ink is ever wasted in your Bible. All of it's vital. The next phrase. It says, the Lord being merciful to him. They took him by the hand, and they forced mercy upon him. Now, that's hard for us to, to buy at, at times when we think about, wait a minute, God doesn't force his mercy on people. Well, here, they literally take the hand and force them to go. And the text itself, I'm not saying this, the text says it. This is because God's merciful to them. 
Let's go. God's going to rescue you out of this place. I am going to linger for a while. No, you're not. You're going. Why? Because I'm merciful. Boom. Take him away. And so God in his mercy, God in his grace, comes and takes him and removes him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. Verse 17. And as they brought them out, one said, escape. So the angels are saying, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. So the concept, flee right now, run, get out of here, because you, it's, it's about to be done. It's going to, God's wrath will be poured out immediately. Go now. Isn't it interesting? Angelic beings saying, don't look back. Now, here's the, here's the rub of that whole thing, is why should I not look back? Because that's wrath, and that's rescue. Why on earth would you want to look back to wrath when there's rescue? What is it in your heart, Lot, that you would want to look back at wrath and neglect the rescue? I heard a pastor say one time there was a story about a guy who got into a pickup truck and they were driving down the road and the guy was very set on where he was going, wasn't about to turn around and was heading back and he didn't have a rear view mirror and the guy said, well, how do you drive? You don't have a rear view mirror. And he said, well, we're not driving backwards. The same concept is in the passage. Don't turn back. There's nothing back there for you. You aren't, there's no reverse here, Lot. Don't give your attention to it. Give your attention to what's in front of you. Now, um, if you look down at the passage, I, <laughs> again, my lot questions are running amok. Look at verse 18. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. Now, it should be period, and that's it. But it's not it. But I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. So here's what I find fascinating about Lot. And I don't understand all this. I'll just own that right off the bat. I don't understand all of what's happening here. The living God has withheld his wrath. The living God has sent two angelic beings to this man. The living God, through the angelic beings, have literally taken him by the hand to lead him out. And Lot's response is, that is so nice, but I have another idea. Now, (laughs) as, as we'll see, guys, in the coming weeks, his idea didn't pan out too well where he went with his daughters, but... I just find it fascinating in the, in the text. The first thing that came to my mind is the idea of a dad and his daughter's blindfold stepping out, and he takes the blindfold off, and there's a 2021 Chevy Corvette, and her first response is, Dad, I hate red. Because you ingrate. The living God's rescuing you. And, and not only that, just think logically for a second. Okay, wait a minute, Lot. If God could rescue you and withhold his wrath and angelic beings direct you out, 
don't you think he could probably protect you in the hills? Yes. But Lot says, I want to go into this city, a city called Zor. It means small place. It's just a tiny little city where he wanted to go. And here's what boggles my mind is that the response of the angels is, okay. So look, look, look down at your Bible. Verse 20. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? <laughs> and my life will be saved. Yeah, Lot, we know. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly. And this is really fascinating to me because the angel gives an explanation of the mission. I can do nothing till you arrive there. Which tells us that this is a rescue mission for Lot, from God. And with all my heart, I am convinced this is because of the petitions, because of the prayers of Abraham. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor. The sun had risen, verse 23, on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. There are, and I don't, I don't blame them at all for this, there are commentators who they want to very quickly talk about how God did this via natural disaster. Um, that, yes, he may have rained down fire and brimstone fr- or brimstone or sulfur from heaven, but they're saying it's also a place where there's a ton of volcanic activity, there's asphalt in the ground at this particular location, and perhaps there was an earthquake and volcanic activity and all that happened at the exact same time. Is that possible? Of course it is. Is that what the text says? No. Does it say it's not that way? No. So I didn't, I didn't lose any sleep last night at all over this. Because the point is, the text says, God's behind it. So if it is just the point blank miraculous, boom, God's wrath raining down, and that's what did this, then that's what happened. If he used natural disaster to do this, then that's what happened. But please notice, nothing in the text tells us that there's any other kind of reason except this is God's judgment on this place. Now, guys, as a preacher and as a Christian, I am convinced one of the greatest things we have to overcome on a daily basis is over-familiarity with the Word of God. Being familiar with the Bible is beautiful and wonderful, but having an over-familiarity with it to the point that we take it for granted is an enemy of us. One of my prayers that you've heard from this pulpit for a decade and in private is, Lord, take away the callous of our familiarity with the Word and give us fresh eyes for the text. And and what text would would be so much my prayer in reference to that? When I say Sodom and Gomorrah, we know it. People use it as a, as a, a parts of a joke or as part of describing a part of our world that they think is a low-down, dirty place. They say, oh, it's Sodom. And we have a, such a familiarity with it when we go, what's Dan preaching on? Sodom and Gomorrah. Wow, I know exactly what happens in that. 
But has your heart been freshly pierced by what the text says? Stop for a second and consider what it would look like for the little town of Pacific City to have brimstone and fire rain down. What's that do to the human flesh? What's it look like when the, the church building has all this raining down and this place is on fire and the next door building is on fire and you just hear screams of people that you've known your whole life? The wrath of God is nothing to play with and nothing to take lightly. To consider this happening in our little town where God goes, enough, I, I've had enough. And I'm pouring my wrath on Pacific City this afternoon. Get out of town. It is, it is horrifying to consider what perfect wrath means. Because it's completely just. This is not an unjust act. This is fully deserving. Just to think of stepping, stepping outside of the city and seeing that. You know, we ask that question sometimes. If you could go back into Bible history and be there for a certain event, what event would you, would you pick? I wouldn't pick this. I don't ever want to see anything of that nature, and by God's grace, I won't have to. But beloved, I believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible. I'm convinced this is narrative. I don't think this is poetic language. I don't think this is some illustration to illustrate a point. I believe this actually happened to people. And I will, pro I will tell you right now, I know for a fact, the sons-in-law of Lot had no laughing at this moment. There are their laughter and their mockery of the living God was turned into screams of desperation under his wrath. And there is nobody, this is, this is so heavy, there is nobody who can or should stop him. We try to marginalize those truths sometimes because we make reference to hellfire brimstone preaching and we say, oh, he's just a hellfire brimstone preacher and use a, that kind of language. You know what we're doing when we do that is we are, in a sense, mocking God because the preaching of hell, the preaching of his wrath, the preaching of fire from heaven should not leave us with a mockery to what hellfire brimstone preaching is. Beloved, do me a favor. From now on, refer to hellfire brimstone preaching as preaching. Because that's really what it is. Jesus spoke more of hell than heaven because it's real. Because the wrath of God will be poured out. And I don't want to mock him. Sometimes we'll even use it as a, as a euphemism where we'll say, oh, that person's going to catch hell for doing that. Or we say, how was it? Oh, it was, you know, hell. No, it wasn't. It doesn't even come close to what that will be.
And so the Lord rained down and destroyed this place. Now we're through the city. Verse 26, but, six, but Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Whether that pillar of salt was an instantaneous actual pillar of salt or it was the fact that that's what happened to her body from the sulfur and the fire, I don't know. The text doesn't say. All I know is that this woman desired to look back. She must have been quite a distance behind him because he's already in Zor when this happens. So she took her time. And the Lord Jesus, just for time's sake, guys, because, yeah, um, in, in John 17, verse 32, the Lord Jesus just gives this brief little phrase. And it's so interesting because it's in the context of, of the Lord's return and of wrath and of judgment. And he says, remember Lot's wife. I think, man, I was talking to a, a very good friend of mine this week, and I said, what a pithy statement, because for Jesus to say, remember Lot's wife, brings this entire context into that context by saying that one little phrase. Because, as he says, those who seek to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life will save it, is the context that that sits in, which tells me that this woman was looking back because that's her comfort, that's her place, that's where she wants to be. Angel said, don't look back, don't pay any attention to that. She looks back, boom, judgment. Verse 27, and Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. I can't imagine the sights and smells that man experienced as he looked at that place that he had poured his heart out before the Lord to rescue. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, and here's a phrase if you highlight in your Bible, I highly recommend right here, God remembered Abraham. God remembered Abraham. Now, he remembered, he remembered his promises to Abraham. He remembered his love for Abraham. He remembered Abraham's prayers. This is not simply God saying, oh, that's right, Abraham, <laughs> slipped my mind. No, it's, it's so much deeper than that. In the same way as we're going to come and do communion in remembrance of him. It's in that same vein. He's moved by what he has promised Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now, Please don't forget this, guys. There's a very interesting point here that um, would be lost, I think, if we read too quickly. Was Abraham's prayer answered that he petitioned? Okay, remember. Remember the flannel graph VBS, right? God has three answers, right? Green? Yes. Yellow? Wait? Red? No. To some level, that's false teaching, because he never says no. He always answers prayer. He just may not answer it the way you want him to answer it. So that might be a no to what you wanted. But he always answers. He answered Abraham's prayer. He rescued righteous Lot and his two daughters from there, obviously from what we see of Lot's wife and what we hear from Jesus speak about her. 
the righteous did not, was not rescued. So Abraham got God down to 10, quote-unquote. It appears there's three. And I don't even know that about the daughters because of what we see later in, the cha- in this chapter. But nonetheless, Abraham had to come to terms with the response of God to his prayer. Beloved, please don't miss this. All of us have to come to terms with God's answers to our prayers. That when God says, I am answering it this way, and it looks a lot different than what you wanted. I've heard some precious saints with snow on the roof tell me that the fact is, those unanswered prayers is pure grace. Where God didn't answer the way I thought, and in his infinite wisdom, he answered it in a way that I will forever, for the rest of my life, express my gratitude to him. And so God, simultaneously, was completely just and completely merciful. And nobody can come to God and say, I'm holding you accountable for your actions because you messed up. Nobody speaks to him like that. Nobody can speak to him like that. That's big. And I know you hear that from me all the time, but guys, you hear it from me because so often we, there is so much weak, puny God talk in Christianity, and I'm convinced that one of, one of, if not the greatest need in the Christian church in 2021 is to see God rightly for who he is. Truly for who he is. Not for who this side said he was or this side said, but from the word, God, who are you? And when we see that, we submit to it. So, let me kind of land the plane and bring you to the Lord's table. I can't help but draw these, con- these comparisons, okay? Track with me. Lot is righteous, we're told in the New Testament. Lot lives in a very, very perverse place. Number one. Number two. Lot is vexed in his spirit. He's disturbed. He's bothered, deeply troubled by the sin in this place he lives. God's wrath is waiting to be poured out because of the outcry of the sin of this place. Lot is called upon to go and plead with the people to flee with him from the wrath of God. God mercifully provided a messenger to Lot that he took heed to. In his lingering, God forced him with mercy to flee. And though the world thought that he was a joke or was joking, the wrath was no laughing matter and was poured out. And by God's grace, Lot was rescued. So here's what I want to ask you. Do you see the gospel? Do you see the gospel in that? I hope you you already connected all those dots way before I ever even read that little list I just read. Because, beloved, that's you. That's me right now. It is promised from the word of God he is going to pour out his wrath on this world. And so you go, so what stage are we at right now? 
He's got you by the hand, and he's re- he is preparing you to flee. So here's my question. How much looking back are you doing? How tight of a grip do you have on this life? Because it's wrath. Now, I'm not saying, therefore, we don't care and we don't give our life, our attention to the things of this world for the purpose of the gospel. You know better than that. Of of course we do that. But that's not what I'm asking. You know that's not what I'm asking. What I'm asking is, how much does this world have your heart to the point where you are being told God is coming to rescue you from his wrath? And you're like, but then i got to let go of Sodom. It sounds so laughable in a sermon and yet so practical in a day-to-day life. My hope and prayer, beloved, is that spiritually speaking, your bags have been packed for some time. (laughs) You've already filled out your forwarding address and you are prepared to be rescued by God who has profoundly taken you by the hand and is leading you before His wrath is to come. And by the way, last note, what all that should do, one thing it should do, one main thing it should do is infuse us with hotter passion to declare the rescue mission of Christ to this world. Even if they think you're joking, they mock you, they slander you, they put you down because they cannot believe you would buy into that. You herald the message happily, rejoicing in what you have in Christ. And then plead with the Lord who is sovereign over the salvation of men to accomplish his task. And then his wrath will be poured out It will come, just as Noah was made a mockery until it started raining, just as Lot was seen as foolish until it started raining. Beloved, you may look foolish, but don't don't for a second think that this world is not on its way to the judgment of the living God. And in His grace, He has redeemed us and made us His own, which is what we're going to remember as we come to the table. So let's, let's pray together. Father, Lord, this is real. This is not a game that, that we play. I, I, I pray it's not. I pray that this is not religion where the world wants to tell us this is a man-made practice to make ourselves feel better. No, no. Lord, this, this, is, this is reality. You, you are existing. You are present. Your son came to this earth. He was crucified. He bore your wrath. And I won't. When my physical body stops working, whether it's cancer or old age or just wear out, whatever you have purposed to take me, 
Father, next comes you. That's reality. And I pray, Lord God, I plead with you, please penetrate my heart with that. That, Father, this is not some kind of earthbound practice, but, Lord, it is the truth. And, God, I pray my life would would line up to the fact that I believe that truth. I would believe and act on that which I say I believe. And that, Father, that would then find its way into my conversation with my neighbors, with my siblings. And that, Lord, it would find its way into my prayers. Father, I, I believe, but I'm asking you to please help me in my unbelief. I love you, Lord God. And um, as I contemplate the holy, who you are, dear God, would that motivate me to quit wasting time? So, Father, as we turn to your table, as we do stop, to give undivided attention to the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, reigning and returning of the Son. Oh, Father God, may we be a grateful people, a people who are in awe of what we have received and who we received it from. For the glory, for the glory and honor of your name, Father, I pray. Uh, Mitch, Rod, would you guys...